This is the O'Reilly Hardware Podcast. I'm John Bruner. And I'm David Craner. It's never been easier to go from idea to digital design to physical product. The new hardware movement is radically changing the way that technology in the world around us is being conceived, built, and connected. This podcast brings you the new generation of hardware creators who work across the boundary between digital and physical. They're designers, engineers, scientists, artists, and business people. For more information on the new hardware movement and the resources you need to become a full-stack hardware creator, visit O'Reilly.com slash hardware. And if you'd like to send in a question for us to discuss on the show, email us at hardware at O'Reilly.com. Hello, welcome to this week's episode of the O'Reilly Hardware Podcast. I'm David Craner, and I'm here with John Bruner. This week, we have a very special guest, Corey Doctorow. He's a writer, digital rights activist, and co-owner and one of the main editors of the blog Boing Boing, which is one of our favorite reads around here and the source of more than a few click spirals. So we're very excited to have you here today, Corey. Um, Thanks a lot for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me on. So the first thing I wanted to talk about today is this IoT company called Revolve. They were acquired by Google. They'd been working with Nest. um, But recently, a few weeks ago, they decided to shut down their service. And their users were issued a notification that not only was accessibility to the platform going to stop working, but the actual hardware that they'd invested several hundred dollars in was also going to stop working. Right. Well, yeah, that's it's it's pretty scary. And, you know, their argument was, well, your warranty will, will have run out. I don't think that's how warranties work. Uh, I don't think the warranty the a warranty is the same thing as like a countdown clock to the day that your device stops working. I guess the reason I brought this up is that um, on this podcast, we talk a lot about the intersection between the physical and the digital. You know, Corey, you have done a lot with digital rights and digital activism, and there are some pretty ridiculous things happening right now with people trying to get DRM into software. Um, but I feel like people in the physical world maybe have a hard time noticing what is going on because concepts of software ownership can seem pretty abstract unless you really spend some time trying to figure it out. Um, but something like this, you know, a physical product that you've bought and it's been working just fine for a while and it's just going to stop working and this is okay because the warranty is over so it doesn't really need to keep working from a contractual standpoint. I mean, I feel like this is a pretty big wake up call to people to start thinking about the concept of ownership. Um, if you buy something, do you actually own it? Well, you know, the thing is, there's no such thing as a hardware business model, right? The margins on hardware are so thin that hardware companies are all really data companies or service companies or both. And data is not copyrightable. And if service is where your margin is, then someone else might come along and provide a better service, either more cheaply or in a more convenient package or interconnected with something else. And so that means that all of the devices that are on the market today, all these smart devices that are really just lumps of plastic and metal that are inert and useless. They're, in fact, they have negative value. They turn into e-waste if they don't have software that's running on them. All of these devices uh, are only uh, yours insofar as you abide by the license terms that are associated with them. And they are all designed to keep you from being able to understand what they're doing and to keep you from being able to add more features to them or reconfigure them beyond the parameters set by the manufacturer, stop you from allowing them to take third-party consumables or access a third-party service. And in order to stop you from de-obfuscating them, from breaking through this barrier, they all add just enough digital rights management to invoke Section 12.1 of the DMCA which makes it a felony punishable by five years in prison and a $500,000 fine to tamper with a lock that controls access to a copyrighted work that is the operating system of the device. 
So what you're saying is that if you go to Best Buy and you buy one of these things and you take it to your house and start hacking on it and taking it apart, hardware and software, so that you and other people can understand how it works, they can brand you a criminal? Yeah, or more to the point, if you look out there and you see someone is selling a thing that's like an inkjet printer where they've got giant margins on a consumable, and you go, hey, uh, I believe in markets and capitalism. I'm going to provide third-party uh, components for all the, that guy's customers that don't gouge them on the ink, then um, as soon as you have to remove a digital lock that restricts a copyrighted work, to do that, you suddenly end up in deep trouble. So like, even if you're not pirating anything, and there's no trade secret. So here's like a really good, concrete, real world, non-speculative example that you don't have to go to the IoT to understand. Cars. We talk a lot about whether people should be able to mod cars or not mod cars and whether there's this great American tradition of modding cars. There is something to that, right? Like there's something in the American story of the car that, that involves tinkering and hacking. And we can like valorize that. But the real problem with digital locks on cars is not what it does to hot rodders. It's that uh, if you want to fix a car, you need to access its diagnostic computers. And the diagnostic computers have DRM on their interfaces. And a mechanic could probably build a device that bypassed the DRM, but he would be committing a felony if he did so. And so uh, in order to uh, unlock those diagnostic computers and read the data from the engine, the mechanic has to get his equipment from the manufacturer. And the manufacturer makes the mechanic sign a deal saying he's only going to buy parts from them. And so your parts for your GM or your Ford cost a hell of a lot more because there aren't third-party mechanics using third-party parts. So it's a way to enforce vendor lock-in. Yeah, it's just a, it's just your normal, everyday garden variety razor blade and razor blade handle scam. But it has the force of law, which is, you know, an amazing thing. It's, you know, the, it's, it, it, the thing about the razor blade scam is that um, it relies on the company spending its own dollars to enforce its rights and to prevent its competition from unlocking it and to play cat and mouse with them by continuously changing the way that the handle and the razor blade talk to each other to stop the competition from knocking it off. But as soon as the government gives you this right, they're effectively saying, we, the taxpayers, will give you a free court system, cops and prosecutors, to defend your business model. And that's a gift that, you know, no company is going to turn down if they if they know what's good for them. It's a it's what economists call the moral hazard. Right. It, it's the it's the government telling companies that if they act as badly as is possible in the market, they will make as much money as is possible. That's the opposite of what we want from our regulation. Does this happen anywhere outside of electronics where you bring home a thing that you've bought? And there's a sticker on the mechanism inside that says, even though you've bought this, it's illegal to open it. Well, there are companies that have tried that for sure. They, you know, the courts have generally told them to get bent when they when they tried it. You know, if you look at uh, um, the early days of records, there were uh, the record players sometimes had a little thing on them that said you can only play Thomas Edison records on this Thomas Edison record player. But, you know, the courts were not super sympathetic to this idea for the same reason that like saying, well, you can only buy toast from the company that sold you your toaster is an obviously terrible idea or dishes from the company that sold you your dishwasher. I mean, like, it's totally true that people sometimes burn down their house by putting the wrong bread in their toaster. And that you, if you control the toast as well as the, the bread, as well as the toaster, you could probably get better toast and a more reliable way out of that toaster. And like the same is true of dishwashers and people probably occasionally die of food poisoning because their dish was like not the right shape to fit in that dishwasher. 
And yet we've never had the principle that making the dishwasher gives you the monopoly on the dishes. But for some reason, like making the phone gives you the monopoly on its apps. It's a really strange idea. And, you know, you can see how it plays out because it doesn't just end up screwing the consumers. It screws the software vendors, too. You know, Apple's marketplace uh, for games, for example, has had the same three or four companies in the top 10 slots for years now. I'm sure you've read about the Shanzai ecosystem and the generally about the way that they do stuff in the hardware ecosystem over in China. It's a topic we like to discuss on here a lot. So I'm interested to hear what's your take on the way that things are currently being done in the West versus that system? Well, I mean, you know, I think that, that China certainly has a lot more uh, innovation in, in certain niches than we do in the West. I mean, it's really clear that like giving people exclusive rights does cause them to invest more, right? There's a lot of money being invested in hardware business models today that wouldn't be there. But on the other hand, it causes them to invest more in things that in the long run end up slowing stuff down. There's, you know, they, they, there's always a cost and there's always a benefit. And um, I think that the problem is not just that it, it slows down innovation and not just that it allows a small number of companies to act as gatekeepers to the rest of the technological world, but also that it's like the old woman who swallows the fly. That if you say, okay, well, you can't break DRM, then you now have to have a rule that says, oh, you can't tell people about how to break DRM. And then you have to have a rule that says, you can't tell people about security vulnerabilities that might help them figure out how to break DRM. And then you have to have a rule that says, well, you have to be able to take anything down from the web instantaneously without going to court or showing any evidence or paying any penalty if you get it wrong, because it might be information about how to break DRM. And so now we have this system where like the tools that go in our bodies, that we put our bodies into and that like rip down the road at 100 miles an hour, these tools are illegal to investigate and report on. And the web that ties them all together is subject to arbitrary acts of censorship without any due process and without any penalties for abuse. And, you know, however we think about innovation and whether it's good or bad or how to optimize it, I think that we should all agree that arbitrary acts of censorship with no penalties and no due process and um, making it illegal to tell people when the devices they depend on for their very lives are unsuited to that purpose, that that's not a good political outcome. And it's far worse than any question about under or over or misinvestment in hardware. So around every device, you've got these concentric rings of like figurative police officers standing around it, holding truncheons, defending it from any kind of open scrutiny. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it. Another thing that we're interested in hearing your take on as a digital rights activist is this recent leak of the Panama Papers. This firm in Panama has been helping wealthy people and companies to hide their assets, um, some for nefarious purposes, some for claimed less than nefarious purposes. And we'd like to hear what you think, what the implications of these leaks are going to be on our corner of the world. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, the the first order effect that I think everyone is, is watching for who, who follows this stuff is what's going to happen to the Icelandic government. Uh, it, it looks like the government might fall as early as today, Friday, when we're recording this. Um, and if that happens and there's a snap election, there's a really good chance the Pirate Party would get in it. And they've previously offered asylum to both Edward Snowden and Julian Assange. So, you know, that's the, oh my God, we live in a cyberpunk novel moment for sure. Um, but, you know, the, the farther reaching effect is what it's going to say about um, tech investors. Uh, who, like all other investors, I think, 
uh, are pretty deeply involved in this kind of uh, financial engineering. And technology has become very capital intensive. Uh, you know, Mitch Kapoor could start Lotus in his garage, and so could Hewlett and Packard. Uh, but I don't think that there are a lot of people who are starting without a lot of capital to begin with. The, the accelerator phenomenon and the angel phenomenon has uh, created a uh, situation on the ground where just to get started, you begin with a PowerPoint deck and get a bunch of money. And then you go from there to getting a lot more money to realize your product. And uh, that means that all products from their very earliest days are being steered by people who are up to their eyeballs in this kind of uh, financial engineering. And that means that what happens and the fallout from the Panama Papers is going to shake down through the whole tech world. So do you worry at all that the breadth of the revolutions in the Panama Papers is going to cause like a kind of global numbness where people fail to condemn politicians and powerful people for hiding their money? You know, because so many people around the world are doing this, constituents will just kind of go, yeah, I guess everyone does this. Yeah, that's a super good and hard question. You know, if you think about the way that the surveillance whistleblowing and leaks have gone, uh, it's been really hard to capture the public imagination. But at the same time, the people involved in the leaking and reporting have gotten smarter about it at each turn. You know, I, I wrote uh, this novel, Little Brother, about mass surveillance uh, in 2006, 2007. And I wrote it in part uh, because this guy named Mark Klein, who had been an engineer for AT&T, walked into EFF's old offices on Shotwell Street in the Mission in San Francisco with a pile of papers and said, my boss made me build a secret room for the NSA and put a beam splitter in our fiber trunk and give them warrantless access to all of the American internet backbone. And that was front page news, right? And we still have a live lawsuit, Jewel the NSA, that is still going, that has to do with the Mark Klein story. And it was on the front page of the New York Times and has been many times since, but no one knows about it. And then WikiLeaks and Cablegate kind of came and went and blew over almost as quickly as it started. And Snowden was a lot cannier about how he released. And so were the journalists he worked with. You know, Gelman and Poitras and Greenwald were really, really clever about this. And that story lasted a lot longer, continues to resonate. And I think that in, this, in the world of financial whistleblowing, there has been uh, a series of these that have built up. I mean, even the week that we got the Panama Papers, we also got something, the, the Unioil scandal. Unioil is the largest bribery scandal in the history of the world. It just had the misfortune to break like 36 hours before the Panama Papers. Unioil was a company in Monaco, is a company in Monaco, family owned, run by these, you know, millionaire, uh, shoulder rubbing, Davos jetting types who, uh, they were the bribery fixers for the oil fields of the world's failed states. And they helped companies like Rolls-Royce and Sinopec and Halliburton loot the oil fields of countries like Yemen and Iraq that then collapsed into a state that gave rise to ISIS. And um, all of it is in this giant dump of all of their email. And it names names, including blue chip companies. And, you know, unlike the Panama Papers, where what the, the firms did in, in with setting up these fake front companies was probably not illegal in most cases, just deeply unethical. Uh, what Unoil did is totally legal, and countries like the US and the UK actually have prison sentences for executives of companies that participate in this stuff. And, and yet that story came and went, and Panama Papers have been a bigger story. And I think what's happening with both the, the Snowden kind of leak and the Panama Papers kind of leak 
is not just that people are getting smarter about how they release those leaks. And remember, the people releasing this stuff are risking their lives and their fortunes. Um, but, but also, the public is figuring out more and more what this stuff means for them because the consequences of this misconduct is becoming more personal, right? Like, I think that the Panama leaks probably resonates pretty deeply in Greece, right? Which is a country whose coffers were looted and then collapsed. You know, if your mom died last year of treatable breast cancer because they couldn't buy radioisotopes for their radiotherapy hospitals in Greece. And the Panama Papers are telling you that these named politicians and richies took their money out of the country, smuggled it out of the country, and bankrupted the coffers. That probably resonates for you in a way that isn't just going to blow over in a couple of weeks. I think the way to think about this is peak indifference, right? Like we are not yeah, we're not at like the peak corruption. We're not at peak surveillance. There's like so much more to come. But we are at peak indifference only because like just like we're we're at peak indifference to climate change, because the carbon that we put into the atmosphere is going to do what it's going to do no matter what we do. Right. All of that carbon from the last 20 years is there and its effect is foreordained and unavoidable. What we're arguing about now is whether the storms that it's bringing today, the, the once in a millennium storms that are landing once a month, are going to be enough to stop us from putting even more carbon in. And in the same way, all of that private information that was collected in surveillance capitalism, all that PII is going to leak and it's going to destroy people's lives. And so what we're trying to figure out now is whether or not uh, we are going to let the IoT, which is going to have smart rectal thermometers and smart thermostats and smart cameras everywhere. I mean, have you ever seen one of those IoT videos where like people walk into their house and they wave their arm and the lights come on and then they say tea, hot, earl gray, black, and the kitchen starts making it? That's a house where you're never off camera and off microphone. And so what we're arguing about is whether or not that stuff is going to breach, right? Or can we decarbonize the surveillance economy? Can we decarbonize financial capitalism before it's too late? That's the, that's the fight we're having right now. So uh, speaking of systems and trust and our trust in systems, I'd love to move to our next segment, which is called tools. And this is where we ask our guest about one or two tools that he or she relies on either in work or outside of work. And I'm particularly curious to ask you, Corey, in the context of this discussion, because I bet you have some tools and some ways of doing your work that reflect your awareness of how these systems work and that our listeners would be really interested in. So let me tell you about my tools, but let me tell you about tools in general, too, if I can, and, and what I, where I think the tools can go. So I'm, I am, like everybody, privacy conscious. I think that maybe I'm subject to more directed scrutiny than the median person, but no, I don't flatter myself that there's, you know, a hidden microphone in the room right now, right? I'm, I'm not paranoid. I just feel like I, it, it's better safe than sorry. So I do things like I turn on full disk encryption on all of my devices and I use long, robust passwords and uh, I generate them with a random password generator on my computer. I use a flavor of Linux called Ubuntu and standard with that distribution is a tool called APG, the advanced password generator. I make long passwords for everything and I keep them in a text file and I encrypt that text file with uh, the successor to TrueCrypt, which is called VeraCrypt. And so after mounting my encrypted hard drive, I mount this encrypted partition and then that's got my text file and I use that to enter my passwords. I use GPG to talk to people 
and CryptoCat and Signal to have chats and and sort of all of the above, all the stuff you'd expect. And if you're interested in figuring out how to be more secure, you can go to some place like the Surveillance Self-Defense Kit that at EFF we put together, which breaks down tools for different users. You know, if you're a student, if you're an LGBT teen trying to, you know, hide out from your intolerant family, if you're, uh, you know, whatever. We have all these different ways of, of, of slicing and dicing this stuff so that you can use it. But what I really want to say is if all of that sounded daunting and terrible and terrifying and like full of acronyms that you don't understand and way too much work for anyone to ever do, that I agree. And I've joined the board of a nonprofit called Simply Secure and Simply Secure raises foundation money to pay UX people to work with security companies, companies making privacy tools to improve their technology uh, and improve its usability so that normal humans can use it. And I think that like when all of this privacy uh, toolsmithing began, anyone who understood why they needed it was already pretty technical because you had to understand information flows to understand why you needed encrypted email. And if everybody who needs your product is technical, you can make your interface really technical. But it doesn't mean that the technology is intrinsically hard. You know, when there was no one doing desktop publishing, all typesetting software assumed you were a typesetter. And we were able to bridge like 95% of the gap between, you know, typing up a mimeographed worksheet for a grade three class in 1975 and full-fledged typography. We were able to bridge that with a tool that just didn't assume you had technical knowledge. At 5% remains irreducible, right? Like uh, you pick up a, a beautifully made book from McSweeney's or O'Reilly and there's some like amazing typesetting in there. And that's not something that you'd get just by reading the manual for Cork Express or InDesign or Ready, Set, Go in 1985, right? But I think we can do the same thing with uh, crypto tools. And that's why I joined the uh, Simply Secure is because I think that like without this, we're not going to be able to bring everyone along because it doesn't matter if I encrypt all my email and put it on an encrypted hard drive and don't leave it on my pop server and run my own pop server. So everyone I correspond with uses Gmail. And so like all of my email that I've so painstakingly protected at my end is sitting unprotected on Google servers. And without other people to play on the privacy team sport with me, I might as well be doing none of it. So this stuff is super important. And the, if you are the kind of deep nerd who can make this stuff work, by all means do. But if you're not, check out the tools that are arriving that are aimed at you. Don't assume that you have to be a deep nerd. I'm on the advisory of a company called Wicker that makes a, a tool that's like Snapchat but has cryptographic robustness. So unlike Snapchat, which just sort of you have to cross your fingers and hope that they made good crypto, Wicker uses good crypto to make the messages disappear uh, after a set period. And it's not on the assumption that I can send someone I don't trust a message and then it will evaporate from their device and they, they, they won't be able to betray me. It's on the assumption that I trust you and I want to share some information with you, but I don't trust you to be robotically perfect and not losing your phone or, or losing control of it. And so we both agree to use a tool that keeps the message in, uh, protected in transit and then makes the message go away unless we take a step to preserve it. And, and that kind of toolsmithing for normal humans 
is the stuff that I think is the future of these tools. Like not tools so easy your mom can use it because moms are have to be super technologically adept because no one gives a damn about them. We never make tools that are suited to their needs. And so they have to pretzel themselves into using the tool and acquire like a deep facility in them. I think we need tools that are so easy your boss can use it because your boss is that guy who says like, I don't care about your security measures. I'm in a day's in and they have a perfectly good computer here in the lobby and I've got a 15 minute block booked on it from, you know, 8.15 to 8.30 and I need to get into the corporate network to answer my dang email, right? We need a tool that's so easy your boss can use it. Those are awesome tools. And now it's time to go to the click spiral section of the podcast, which is my favorite section of the podcast. It's where we discuss with our esteemed guest something that has been taking up browser tabs recently, which may or may not have to do with work. And we talk about it and enrich ourselves and one another through vigorous discussion. And we all thus improve ourselves through this uh, process of mental calisthenics. Exactly. It's all very... uh... It's all very Victorian. Victorian. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Techno-Victorian. Usually... Uh, who goes first? Who, who should we have go first this week? Usually John and I go first. You want to go first, John? Sure. I'd, I'd be glad to go first. So my click spiral this week has to do with the urban planner, Robert Moses. So this is the guy who's the subject of a landmark book by Robert Caro called The Power Broker. And The Power Broker traces the rise of a young, idealistic Robert Moses who breaks the robber baron's hold on oceanfront land and opens up beaches and recreation to the masses and then his subsequent descent into a highway-obsessed, power-hungry madman. So it's, it's, it's more than a story of urban planning. It's a story about the accumulation of power, which Robert Moses was extraordinarily good at. He wrote himself into a lot of chairmanships and, and commissions for life, and it took a lot of untangling, eventually by Nelson Rockefeller, to remove him. So a friend of mine named uh, Tim Wong has announced a game design competition based on the Power Broker. He's taking submissions for games that reflect something about the Power Broker and express its themes through gameplay. It could be that the Power Broker is the thin veneer of plot over a game that's really about something else, or it could be that it's the basis, the, the core basis of a game about the accumulation of power. Yeah, I uh, there's an amazing graphic novel about Robert Moses called, uh, I think called Robert Moses. Um, huh. Robert Moses, master builder of New York City. And it came from First Second, or, or not First Second, No Brow, which is this British graphic novel publisher, extremely high quality, thoughtful, beautifully made books. Uh, when I lived in London uh, until last summer, uh, they were practically our neighbors. I used to drop by their shop all the time and see what they were up to. So does Robert Moses have a reputation in the UK? No, I think that uh, Nobrow publishes a lot of U.S. interest work as well. They have a, an American distributor, and uh, they really have done very well with some of their titles uh, here in the USA. So they, they uh, I think that it was just about that. But, you know, urban planning is a hotly contested issue in the U.K., not least because they're in the midst of such a, a housing crisis, mm-hmm. and also because housing has been weaponized there. These two facts aren't unrelated but you know the the housing market in the uk to a greater extent even than in the u.s treats shelter as an asset and not as a human right Hmm. and so states are incentivized to increase its price Mm -hmm. which is you know pretty amazing when you think of it that way like if a government doubled the price of bread in five years they'd never get another vote but double the price of shelter in five years and it's a surefire election winner Mm -hmm. so the economy is doing great exactly and you know the panama papers dump just revealed that all of that property is is just laundered criminal assets and so london is squeezing out people who do the work of London 
in favor of uh, criminals who buy safe deposit boxes in the sky. So that is my click spiral for this week. David, what's your click spiral? Uh, my click spiral is something that I read on this blog called Boing Boing. I don't know mm-hmm. if you guys have heard of it, uh, but I've been following with bated breath all the drama going on in EVE Online. Um, and Corey, I know that you have been writing about uh, these wars that have been going on EVE Online. I, I feel weird discussing a blog post that you wrote, but basically there's a, uh, I mean, ba- basically <laughs> there, there, there's war brewing. There's, there's, a, there's a very large empire. So, so to, to take a step back for our listeners who may or may not be familiar with EVE Online, it's a, it's a very large, massively multiplayer online game, um, which takes place in space. And everyone has a little uh, craft and you can start mining stuff and you can pe- start corporations and coalitions and... And it, and it turns into this very large generative kind of space society. And, and it's fascinating because some people joke about it being called spreadsheets in space because it's really, you know, kind of an economic simulator, except you fly around in spaceships. But over the course of the years that the game has been in play, um, there have been some very large kind of groups and coalitions that are formed that have gradually taken over a large place of the game space. And, you know, there's, there's, there's banks that do trading in, in the currency of the game called ISK, which actually is, is anchored in real value because ISK is what you use to pay for your playtime. Um, so people are trading, they're converting US dollars and euros into ISK. You, you can via a number of like outside, outside means, but I mean, basically it comes from like mining and acquiring assets and other stuff like that. But, but people have built these huge corporations and there's, there's a, there's a really giant one that's taken over mo- most of space um, based on using a, a scheme based on the way the Persian Empire used to do it, which was like, they go in and say like, hey, you swear allegiance to us and give us a little bit of tax and we'll just leave you alone. Um, and then, you know, there's a few people who aren't part of that. But but apparently it's really kicking off because someone who's a who's like a smaller ally of this giant coalition has been, was griefing someone from one of the major banks in the game, uh, which is like bankrolled by an online casino, which is where you can convert ISK to, to, to real money. And so now all the people with the money are really, really pissed off at the giant empire and are like funding some kind of giant insurrection against them. And I'm, I'm not entirely sure what's going on, but it all sounds very exciting. Corey, what do you think about all of this? Yeah, it's pretty amazing. I mean, EVE Online is, um, it's really set up so that there there isn't much of a game unless you are playing the spreadsheet game. Unless like the, the in the same way that Warcraft eventually turned into a, a game not about killing monsters, but about getting 40 of your friends to meticulously plan a raid to kill monsters, uh, mm. Eve very quickly stopped being a game about piloting an imaginary spaceship and started to be about really and truly convincing people to help you build empires by incidentally piloting imaginary spaceships. And there are no rules in EVE uh, about what is and isn't economically allowed. And so there have been major Ponzi schemes, uh, which are not a crime in EVE, and they've sucked huge amounts of money out of the game. Like $10,000 uh, worth of like... Yeah. The first time this ever crossed my radar with EVE was um, there, the uh, people who ran the game had changed the, the balance of power by adding certain weapons that favored pirates over merchants. And um, the merchant class became outraged and they felt that there had been a kind of bait and switch. And so two members of the merchant class uh, created a, a Ponzi scheme where they, or a fraud really, where they said to the other merchants, if you give us huge amounts of in-game money, we are going to use it to build this new kind of spaceship that will let us all defend ourselves from pirates. And once they'd amassed like a really large appreciable fraction of all of the wealth in the game, they resigned their accounts and made that money disappear to create a kind of deflationary (laughs) spiral in the game. 
as a like giant raised middle finger to the uh, game runners and as a way of ruining the gameplay of the uh, other players wow. to try and punish the game for doing this. So is the community into this kind of uh, subterfuge? Is it is it is it wrecking the appeal of the game, or is this what is this what people play it for? I think the answer is yes to both. Yeah. Right. I mean, I think that like the the thing that makes this game so compelling is they hang out playing the game and doing all of this really crazy stuff that's really hard to uh, to kind of put a boundary on. You know, kind of the the sky's the limit. Your imagination is the limit. What you can convince other people to do with you is the limit. But on the other hand, that means that people who can be giant dicks, yeah, and, that's true, uh, really thrive in the game which I think for them and the people who aren't directly implicated is probably really um, awesome, but for the people on the other side of it, not so much. It's, it's kind of like, like, is YouTube fed by or detracted from by the awful prank th- uh, people who like, you know, I don't know, happy slapping or, uh-huh. or any of those other things where they, they do incredibly cruel things to other people? I think the answer is yes to both, right? Yeah, Clearly, yeah. like the reason those guys are doing that is because lots of people get off on watching the humiliation of strangers. The strangers probably don't like it. And the people making uh, the videos are getting off on, on, on the people getting off on them getting off. Yeah. And, you know, I expect that, that like there's someone at Eve who kind of wishes that the only news that broke about their, their product was not, oh my God, here's this other like wretchedly awful, greedy scam or war that's taking place in this virtual world. But there's also people who like really get off on playing that, right? So another thing that I think is fascinating about this is I was reading a bunch of articles. Um, I started with yours and ended up going down into some of the Polygon coverage about it. And I was reading a quote from one of the game developers and he talks about how there are different levels of game in this game. So for example, if you're just starting and playing casually, um, you know, your whole game experience might just be relatively minor tasks like flying around in your spaceship, mining, getting killed by space pirates, you know, just kind of making ends meet for your little company. Um, but and you, you, you might not ever see the giant sprawling Game of Thrones type macro movements on the map that we're that we're reading about so excitedly. Um, this, this developer said that only a couple hundred people maybe get to experience the game uh, from this aspect. And and that type of gameplay is very different and some might even say more exciting. So it's funny because it seems like the actual game experience is being built on the top of many thousands of people who are grunts in the game who work to provide a, a super duper experience for the power players who really invest in it. Yeah, I mean, it, it, and the other funny thing, of course, is that this is all happening in um, Iceland because the company is headquartered in Iceland, uh, which is in the middle of having its actual government non-virtual government collapse because of a finance scandal linked to the Panama Papers. So, Corey, now it's your turn. Um, what have been in your browser tabs lately? So my big project for the last couple of months, and we've had a big setback on it, has been to convince the World Wide Web Consortium to try to protect uh, people from the negative consequences of its decision to add digital rights management to the core spec for HTML. And we just lost a really important battle there. It's had me very glum for the last couple of days. So explain the inclusion of DRM in the HTML spec first. And, uh, and then we'll get into what you're working on. 
Yeah, there are a lot of ways of thinking about it. And um, I, I think I've changed my thinking a little about it recently. So I'll give you what my current thinking is. So there's two ways of, of trying to imagine how we could make the web better. And they, they uh, which one you pursue depends on what your theory about what um, the future of business online is. So if you think that uh, web browsers, the web browsers we have now are unlikely to be the web browsers we have in 10 years, and the web browsing companies we have now are unlikely to be the companies we have in 10 years, then what you need to do to make the web as good as possible is to ensure that anyone can enter the market with a new product that treats people and the ecosystem better than the products that exist today. If on the other hand, you think it's game over, if you think the web has matured and that although all the browsers now kind of didn't exist 10 years ago, that they will continue to exist for the next 100 years, then what you need to do is make them behave better, uh, even if the rules that you put in place for them are rules that no new startup could abide by, thereby ensuring that they will be the only browsers that we get forever because no startup could ever enter the market again because we're putting so many impediments in the way. So what are they proposing to actually put into the standard? So... What you get at the World Wide Web Consortium is this belief that digital rights management is a foregone conclusion and that therefore the way that we fix it is by making a standard at the W3C that all the current web developers, all the current web companies will come and agree on. And um, because it's happening at the World Wide Web Consortium, which is this public interest group, we can force them to put some concessions in for privacy and, and a few other things, fairness, but but not as good as no DRM at all. But this is like the compromise that we're gonna get, and this is how we'll bring them to heal. So the World Wide Web Consortium created this thing called encrypted media extensions, and it's a way for um, browsers to receive DRM locked videos, uh, and then to control how their users interact with those videos so that the users, if they ask their computers to save them, their computers will refuse to do their will. That's a huge bummer. It really is. And it depends on uh, each web browser to implement EME needs to find a DRM vendor like Adobe or in the case, which is what um, Mozilla is using, or in the case of Microsoft and Apple, their, their own internal DRM divisions. They need to find a DRM vendor to partner with them to make another piece that is required to make EME run called a, a content decryption module or CDM. And so what that means is that all the new companies that we can imagine coming up that might make the next generation of browsers will need to go and find a CDM partner that the studios approve of. And right now, that's just the OS vendors and Adobe. And pay a crap ton of money to license it to be compatible or something? That's right. And so we're, we're you know, the, the future, if we, if we did get new browsers, the future would look a lot like the early days of the web, where you'd have things that were best viewed with the incumbent browsers or best viewed with the new browsers. And um, websites would have to make a decision about whether or not they were going to support those new browsers, which is kind of the opposite of what you want from a standards body, right? Standards bodies are supposed to produce interoperable equipment. But, and so that's, that's, a, that's a huge bummer, right? The idea that we are like locking innovation out of the web because the studios are only going to grant permission to companies that do what they want, even if what they want doesn't have any connection with copyright law. You know, if, if you're allowed to own a VCR that can record video off the TV, there's not really any legal basis for asserting you can't record video off your computer either. Now, you can do illegal things with the things you record off your TV. You could, you could then, you know, burn it to a DVD and sell it on Broadway, and that would still be illegal. But the act of recording is legal, and the act of making a VCR is legal. And, and, but the thing is that DRM is illegal to break. So even if you want to do something legal, DRM is illegal to break. 
And so once the W3C decides to put DRM into browsers, then reverse engineering how an existing browser works to add a new feature to it or to make a competitor to it or to do something that's otherwise lawful for it. Like, for example, Dan Kaminsky is this legendary security researcher who's also colorblind, built an extension that on the fly can change the gamut of video to make it accessible to people who are colorblind. That sounds really helpful, and like a generally good thing for society. And it's not illegal, right? But it is illegal to break the DRM to do it, and you have to break the DRM to do it. Uh, and so that's bad. And then the other really scary piece of this is that uh, DRM is illegal to report security vulnerabilities in, right? If you report security vulnerabilities in DRM, you're weakening the DRM because its attackers now have uh, like a, a known attack surface they can target. And so we've seen this in the real world that devices that have DRM in them, uh, their vulnerabilities take longer to come to light. It's usually once they're being actively exploited and those active exploits are so widespread that they breach and, and people notice them, like you can't, you can't not talk about them, that those vulnerabilities come to light. And that's far too late for the people who've already been exploited by these vulns. And um, as browsers become the go-to interface, the whole point of HTML5 is to replace apps and have browsers be the go-to interface for the interconnected internet of things, the the actuated sensing device realm, which I think we, we're, we're talking about today as well, um, as, as that happens, then all of those devices become reservoirs of long-lived vulnerabilities that we're not allowed to talk about until it's too late. So we went to the W3C at first when they proposed this, and we said, like, you guys have got to be on crazy pills. Like, you're supposed to represent the open web. How can you claim to represent the open web? And they're like, well, you know, without DRM, uh, the uh, without a DRM and a standard, the companies are just going to go off and make DRM in their own proprietary way, and the W3C will become less significant, and then we won't be able to exert our positive influence on them, right? Like, it's, you know, we have to destroy the village to save it. Better a screwed up web with us in it that we were complicit in destroying than a uh, 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 screwed up web that we uh, um, absented ourselves from that we're not around to try and salvage. Uh, and this is, you know, the kind of counsel to despair that always leads to bad outcomes. You know, this is the, it be everyone in the chain here is saying better something screwed up with someone great like me still around in a position of power than something screwed up without me in it. And so this is Mozilla's argument for putting DRM in Firefox and it's Apple's argument for putting DRM in iTunes. And, you know, it's like it, everybody has made this argument. And if nobody made this argument, if we all agreed, actually, let's shoot for something better than a screwed up web with us in it. Uh, let's shoot for a web that's not screwed up. But you said that you were unsuccessful in your lobbying effort. We came up with a better idea, or not a better idea, but at least a way to salvage things. The W3C has actually been in this place before. When software patents were first uh, um, a real thing, uh, the W3C had this crisis because so many of its members wanted software patents, but they could see that if there was patented art in the standards that they were making for the web, that it'd be really hard to standardize the web because you'd have to go and get permission. So they decided to clear the obstacles to implementing web standards by making everybody who, who sat down at the W3C make a legally binding promise not to use their patents against people who implemented web standards. So we said, great, we know how to solve this problem. 
we're not going to take a position on whether DRM is good or bad. We're going to take a position on whether or not there should be impediments to standards implementation. And so everybody who comes to W3C, in addition to promising not to use their patents, has to promise not to use their rights under the Digital Millennium Copyright Act and the worldwide equivalents to it to attack people who are implementing this technology or who are improving its security. And that was what we just lost on. We fought so hard for this. We got a ton of members to come forward and say that the charter of the group that's working to standardize the DRM shouldn't be renewed unless they had this. Um, and then after a couple of months of wrangling and a failure to come to any kind of consensus, like for the same reason, you know, the turkeys don't vote for Christmas, it seems unlikely that companies advocating for DRM, you know, Netflix and Comcast aren't going to say, you're right, people should be able to break DRM for legal reasons. Uh, so in the absence of, of a consensus, Tim Berners-Lee personally said, all right, well, let's just make DRM without any protections. And he's the benevolent dictator of the W3C and what he says goes and that's it. We're, I, I don't know what we're going to do. I honestly don't know what we're going to do. I think maybe we just lost the web. You know, we recently saw an early hint of the kind of cartelized browser dynamics that you're predicting where you've got a bunch of proprietary DRM formats and content producers can demand that a browser has a particular DRM scheme in order to run it. Uh, and that in turn makes it possible to make content that runs on only one platform or one browser. Last fall, Amazon announced that its streaming video services would cease to be available on Google TV or Chromecasts. And its excuse was that this was too small a market to justify the support. But really, it's just a flavor of Chrome that's not so different from other flavors of Chrome, at least from the perspective of, of the web host. So it's purely an anti-competitive move to shut out the users of a competitor's product. Well, and you know, if it was truly the case that it was just too expensive to support it, they could um, promise not to use the DMCA to punish people who uh, added that support themselves, right? And then, and then it could become a thing that everybody else uses. They wouldn't even have to remove the DRM. They could just promise not to sue people who broke the DRM to add back this functionality that they were taking away. And uh, I think that the, the fact that that option exists, which is not something people talk about much, but the fact that that option exists uh, and the fact that no companies take it tells you that when they say, oh, we're doing this because it's a kind of practical decision and, and has nothing to do with anti-competitive conduct, it's just not true. They have it in their power and they choose not to. And so this is a, it's, it's, it's really got me down. Um, uh, I don't know if we fork the W3C. I don't know if we continue to put public pressure on them. I do know that if this rule had been in place when the companies advocating for DRM at the W3C had been started, they wouldn't exist, right? Netflix started by distributing DVDs without permission from the studios uh, and charging money for it. And if, if there had been a uh, means by which the studios could sue because Netflix had to break some lock to put the DVD in the envelope, they would have, you know, and cable. Well, Comcast started as community antenna television, where in the 40s, they, they would put up these broadcast, or these broadcast reception antennas that had wires that went to their customers' houses, and they sucked down broadcast programming without paying for it, and then redistributed it for money to people's houses. That's where cable came from. That sounds like an awfully familiar business model, by the way, and it's something that uh, Comcast has recently opposed. Well, and you know, if the people who made, uh, um, who made CDs had agreed on something like EME, there wouldn't have been an iTunes. And it's it's one company after another. If if Netscape uh, had had some means or, or if Internet Explorer had had some means to prevent Mozilla from replicating its functionality, there'd be no Firefox. 
So every one of these firms that are participating in DRM got their start by doing something that DRM would have prevented. And, you know, every pirate wants to be an admiral. That's not surprising. The surprising thing is that the W3C is helping them pull up the ladder behind them. And I think the reason why is what I was saying at the beginning of this chat here, which is that the uh, they are now operating on the assumption that the web is cooked, that there aren't any future companies coming down the road. And so it doesn't matter if you impose barriers to competition because there is no competition coming. Uh, you know, we would like, just like there's three auto manufacturers and four record labels and five movie studios and five publishers left, there is going to be three or four web browser companies for the rest of the future. And that's what our future is going to look like. And so now we have to switch from making sure anyone can enter the marketplace to making sure that the people in the marketplace are held to account in some minor way that, you know, we, we put a bit of a rein around them. Yeah, so I mean, I'm sorry to sound so glum here. I have I have been really in the dumps for the last couple of days trying to figure out exactly what it is we do uh, about this. And I, I, to be honest, I don't have any answers. I mean, this is how all this stuff started. I went back to EFF after the W3C made this decision, and and Mozilla made this decision because I thought this is it. You know, I can't I can't sit on the sidelines writing science fiction novels. Uh, we're going to lose. The open web. We're gonna lose. You know, we're gonna lose the future uh, if if we don't go do something about it. And I wrote this piece called uh, "Getting Huxley into the Full Orwell," where you know we're pursuing entertainment technology uh, in a way that makes our browsers into systems for spying on us, for controlling us. So a lot of this is motivated by media companies who want to protect media that's already been produced. And I mean, I think people should get paid for the stuff that they make or whatever. But the thing that is scary to me is that these rules that are being made to protect the interests of the people who already have the market cornered to a higher degree can also be applied for scarier constraints on free creation and free speech. And people don't want to talk about that because they just say, oh, it's just about movies and video games. Like, why should we care? Let me let me push back on you slightly about whether this is about getting paid, because I, I don't think copyright law is about ensuring that if you can think of a way to charge people money for being entertained, uh, the law will stop people from changing the landscape. So that's harder. Uh, you know, a good example of this is the FCC just put down a mandate called the unlock the box mandate, where they are they're seeking to require cable and satellite operators to allow anyone to build a satellite receiver or cable receiver. So the average family is spending something like $260 a year on a three generations old PC in an ugly box with high power consumption that sits on top of their television that they're not allowed to own that does their cable reception. And by opening it up, you know, we could do things like let you skin it, skin the UI, make a UI that isn't so like janky and fugly the way that all of the UIs for all those set-top boxes is to let you combine a single search across, you know, your uh, Amazon subscription and your Netflix subscription and your pay TV options, you know, all of this stuff. And the studios have said, well, we'll make less money if you do that. And that means that it's piracy because like we rely on it being hard for you to figure out if you get to watch something that you're about to spend $4.99 on for free in one of your other subscription services. I'm just saying that these companies are motivated by trying to maintain homeostasis. But the thing that's troubling to me about all of this is that if you don't care about anything else than just maintaining homeostasis, the fight seems a bit short-sighted in comparison to all the wonderful future that you might be inadvertently nipping in the bud. Well, and it's what economists call rent-seeking. You know, rather than adding value, you just lock other people out of adding value. So, you know, when I was doing digital rights management standards in European DTV, 
uh, digital television. One of the arguments I remember having was this guy from the motion picture industry was strenuously arguing for a flag that you could put in a program that would limit pauses, how long you could pause the show. And it was like, well, what if someone like really needed to take a break to like go to the toilet? They said, well, they could pay for the break. So it's ownership of the experience so far down that you're paying to pause the media. Yeah, they call it in the in the the, the copyright industry is just putting comments to the FCC where they, they called it minutely controlling the experience, minutely specifying the experience. Right. That's what they think that that's and that's not copyright. That's just um, like it would be nice if the government would make it illegal for people to pay me less. That, that's not the same as being stolen from. Right. The, the, the unwillingness of the government refusing to, to force people to pay you more is not the same as being stolen from. So as a way of wrapping up this segment of the podcast, um, is there a place where listeners can go, you know, a, a name for your efforts uh, or your, your campaign here, something that people can support in a tangible way? Yeah, the project is called Apollo 1201. And uh, Ap- Apollo obviously is the Apollo mission, the 10-year mission to go to the moon. And 1201 is the section of the DMCA that bans breaking these digital locks. And the project is meant to kill all the DRM in the world in a decade. We've got some pretty exciting announcements we're going to be making soonish about this. But in the meantime, uh, if you go to Apollo 12, you can, if you Google it, you can read a little about it. One thing that I, I'd be really interested in, and if, if any of your readers are security researchers, I've got an open sign-on for people who um, uh, want the W3C to guarantee that security researchers can conduct research on uh, on web browsers, even the ones that have the DRM they're specifying in it. And we really could use your name. So if you're a security researcher, send me email, corey at eff.org. Uh, let me know what country you operate in and let me know if you have a, a technical affiliation or professional affiliation you want listed with your name and um, we'll add you to the list. And, and the more the merrier, especially if you're outside the US or and or the EU, it'd be great to hear from you. I know the W3C is very interested in Uh, the opinions of what they call the next billion users, the people in the developing world. So that's Apollo 1201, definitely worthy of the support of our listeners. And this segment is Click Spiral. So if you're out there listening and you have something you'd like us to discuss with a future guest on the podcast, really dig into something that's absorbed you on the internet, email us at hardware at O'Reilly.com. This has been really great, uh, but I think that's about all we have time for today. Thank you again, Corey, so much. if people want to find you in the internet, how do they do that? Well, put Corey into Google. I'm the first result, C-O-R-Y. Uh, I have this website with my friends called Boing Boing, B-O-I-N-G, B-O-I-M-G. And I have a website called Crap Hound. That's my personal stuff. Cool. Sounds great. Thanks again, Corey. Okay. Thanks, guys. For links and other information related to this week's episode, visit O'Reilly.com slash hardware and send your questions and comments to hardware at O'Reilly.com. If you enjoyed the program, make sure you've subscribed on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or your favorite podcasting platform. And if you really enjoyed it, consider leaving us a review. Until next time, I'm David Crane. And I'm John Bruner. <laughs>